2: The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
1: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: If you like history at all, you should read this book. If you're interested in the American Civil War, this is an amazing book. There are thousands of books probably written about the American Civil War, but uh, this is a bit different. Our guest today is the author of America Flame*, David Goldfield, Robert Lee Bailey Professor of History at UNC Charlotte. And this new book, America Flame*, is a major new interpretation of the Civil War era. The war is not seen as any kind of triumph, but instead the author sees it as America's greatest failure. Goldfield synthesizes political, social, economic, and religious history of the era from 1834 to 1876. America Aflame challenges long-held myths about the American Civil War. No doubt about it, the Civil War was the defining event of our nation's entire political and cultural history. So many books have been written about the Civil War. What was your purpose in writing yet another?
2: I was really uncomfortable with Prevailing views of the Civil War, Bert. First, let me say that it's a pleasure to be with you uh, today. And I, I approached the uh, the topic uh, from the perspective not of a Civil War historian, but uh, as a as a Southern historian. And several things concern me about the prevailing interpretations of the Civil War. The prevailing interpretation is that uh, slavery caused the Civil War, and that the Civil War was a great war of liberation, uh, where men on both sides fought heroically, and uh, the good guys won, and that uh, finally a Reconstruction uh, was a time of failure, particularly failure to provide the civil and political rights for African-American citizens who had recently been freed. Now, there's nothing wrong in in general in that uh, interpretation, but it's really incomplete. I mean, if you say that slavery started the Civil War, was the main cause of the Civil War, that really doesn't tell the entire story, because we were a slaveholding nation for our entire history up to that time. We had compromised over slavery in 1787 with the Constitution, we had compromised with Missouri admission to the Union in 1820, and we had compromised over the admission of California as a free state in 1850. Why suddenly, in 1861, we could no longer compromise? The uh, other part of it is that uh, the North is always depicted uh, as the Republic of Virtue, uh, and the the South as the evil empire in all of this. Uh, And one thing my book makes clear, both sides are culpable for the Civil War. Both sides led the nation into the bloodiest war in American history. As far as Reconstruction being a failure uh, is concerned, certainly African Americans did not come out of Reconstruction with anything but their freedom. Now, without denigrating just the fact of freedom, the fact is that African Americans would wait another century uh, before they attained the fruits of that freedom. And I want readers of my book to come away after they read my book with two questions. One, uh, was this awful, bloody conflict necessary. In other words, was this a war of necessity or a war of choice? Did we have to kill 620,000 men to achieve the results of of this particular war? And if you extrapolate that to today's population, that's about 10 million deaths in the Civil War, comparably. And the second question I'd like them uh, to ask is, were the results of this war, that is the liberation of 4 million slaves and the salvation of, of the Union, could the results of this war have been attained through a peaceful process rather than through
0: war. And it does raise a lot of questions. And you talk about the North and the South, neither side being particularly uh, virtuous by standards of keeping out of the war and doing the right thing. Your book, America Flame, focuses a lot on the evangelicals in the North and the South.
2: This is something new in the debate over the Civil War. Uh, historians really have not talked about religion. They've talked about religion and revivals during the Civil War, but they have not really talked very much about the impact and the influence of evangelical Protestantism on the origins and the coming of the Civil War I- itself. And as I said, I approached this as a Southern historian, and all Southern historians will tell you that in order to understand the South, you have to understand evangelical religion. And this is not only true, I found, of the South, but it was true of the North at the time uh, as well. And what I discovered was this. Many Northern evangelicals, and uh, they were all products of the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious revival in the early 19th century that swept across the entire Country and converted tens of thousands of people uh, to the evangelical denominations, particularly Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians. But in the mid 1840s, these denominations split along sectional lines, portending, in fact, the split of the nation. And Northern evangelicals had a particular a messianic view uh, of their religion. Uh, they believed uh, that in order for Jesus Christ to come again, that is the second coming of, of Jesus, that society had to be rid of all of its sins. It was not enough for individuals to declare Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, but society also had to be uh, reformed. Well, what were the two greatest sins? of American society in the early 19th century, in the years and decades leading up to the Civil War. And I found that the two greatest sins, one was slavery, naturally, uh, holding another human being in bondage and not uh, paying that person for his or her labor. Uh, And secondly, uh, Roman Catholics, and the Roman Catholic Church in particular. Now why Roman Catholics? I mean, we can all understand slavery, certainly. But why Roman Catholics? Well, don't forget, Bert, that we were an experiment at the time. Our government, government by the consent of the government, was we the only government in the world like that at that particular time. So there was a sense that we were a fragile experiment, and experiments can succeed, of course, but they can also fail. And we were very vigilant about threats uh, to that particular experiment. Now Northerners believe that slavery and slaveholding was a threat to that experiment, but they also believed that Roman Catholics were a threat to that experiment. Why? Because the belief was that Roman Catholics would owe their allegiance not to the President of the United States, but to the Pope in Rome. And secondly, our system of government requires an educated and informed electorate. And in other words, people need to make up their own minds about who to vote for. Well, the feeling was that Catholics don't make up their own minds, that they listen to their priests, whatever they're told, or their bishop or archbishop or cardinal or the pope, and they do what they are told. So they're not an independent uh, intellect uh, that would support the democratic process. And this became a great concern in the 1830s, and particularly in the 1840s uh, with the Irish potato famine and the migration from Ireland that occurred. Over one million Irish Catholics migrated to the U.S. within a ten-year period after 1847. And uh, again, uh, we were a relatively small population at the time, and this frightened many Protestants, particularly evangelical Protestants, who were concerned about these Irish Catholics perhaps being fifth column, perhaps being uh, subversive. And, in fact, I opened the book with the destruction of the Ursuline Convent in Charlestown, Massachusetts by a Protestant mob. If you had walked down the streets of Philadelphia or Boston or New York or Chicago or Portsmouth, New Hampshire... Uh, in the 1850s or 1840s, and asked anybody on the street what the greatest threat to America was, they wouldn't have said slavery. They would have said, depending upon their denomination, they would have said either Protestants or Catholics. I mean, we were Belfast in these times, and of course, uh, the culmination was the Great uh, Sectarian Riot in New York City in July 4th, 1857. Uh, that was immortalized by Martin Scorsese in his uh, movie Gangs of New York. So this was a very serious problem that uh, Americans felt that they had to uh, confront. The bad part about it, Bert, was that this was transferred into the political uh, arena. Uh, Evangelicals became political enthusiasts, and they didn't have a particular political party until the early 1850s uh, when the Know-Nothing Party or the American Party uh, was formed. It was an anti Catholic party, a party seeking to limit, if not uh, end, immigration, and certainly restrict the civil rights of Roman Catholics. Well, uh, religious bigotry is usually a pretty thin reed on which to build a national political movement, so the party merged with another new party, and this was an anti slavery party, another evangelical party called the Republicans. So the Republicans merged these two strains of anti Catholicism and anti slavery, and became the leading evangelical party in the 1850s, and injected, injected this religious fervor uh, into the political process. So political issues became not only merely political issues, but they became moral issues as well. And your opponent became not only misinformed or misguided, but your opponent became evil. Right. So our political system, depends upon moderation and compromise our country has always governed best from the center and when we move to the extremes we get gridlock or we get violence right. and this is basically what happened in bringing about the civil war we could not compromise on any of these issues uh, and it was either good or evil because how do you compromise with sin right. and then when you go to war you believe of course that god is on your side and Red Butler has a marvelous quote in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. He said, all wars are sacred or else nobody would fight them. Mm. And that was true of the Civil War. Both sides believed that they had God on their side and they were engaging uh, in a holy quest.
0: We are talking with author David Goldfield about uh, his new book, America Aflame, How the Civil War Created a Nation. So it sounds like nativism, was perhaps as much a factor as abolition in in getting the war started and fanning the flames and and being certain of your side, the absolutely inflexible. And as you say, in a democratic society, the political process depends on accommodation, and that was absolutely impossible for, for both sides. I wonder about President Lincoln, what his relationship with God was, any indication that he viewed the coming war as a necessary cleansing of the nation?
2: Uh, That's a very good question, Bert. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was not a particularly religious individual, and he certainly was not a religious bigot. Although, uh, in 1858, when he ran against Stephen Douglas uh, for the U.S. Senate race in Illinois, you recall the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, the Illinois Republican Party, their campaign slogan that year and the banner under which he ran was, vanquish the twin despotisms, Roman Catholicism and slavery. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lincoln knew, of course, that his party contained these religious bigots. He was not a religious bigot. Himself, and in fact, he, he, he abhorred religious bigotry. But nevertheless, the Republican Party contained these elements. Now, as far as Lincoln's personal uh, religious beliefs were concerned, in the 1830s, he had he wrote a 500-page manuscript yeah. called "On Infidelity," uh, and in those days, it, when you said. The word infidelity, it didn't mean that uh, wives cheating on their husbands, husbands cheating on their wives, or anything like that. It had to do with the fact that you did not believe in God. Uh, you were, in fact, an infidel, uh-huh. which, uh, fr- from which we get I- infidelity. Oh, interesting. Uh, and uh, Lincoln was struggling with this, because this was at the height of the Second Great Awakening, and he just couldn't bring himself to believe that, in fact, there was a God. Well, his law partner tossed it into the fire and said, look, Abe, if you ever have political ambitions, and by that time he certainly did, uh, th- this will kill you, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> nobody's going to vote for an atheist. Uh, So you you, you better get rid of this and and put this behind you. Uh, Well, of course, Lincoln eventually married uh, Mary Todd. Mary Todd became Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, who was quite a devout Presbyterian, uh, an evangelical Protestant. Uh, But he never himself joined the Church. However, after 1849, in 1849 his son died, uh, and he began to think more in... uh, theological, I wouldn't say religious, but more in theological terms, he began to uh, think more and more about God and God's place in the universe, and particularly God's place in uh, America. And if you look at his writings, if you look at his speeches after 1849, he begins to talk more in the vernacular of uh, biblical passages. Uh, he begins to quote from the Bible uh, a, a bit more. It doesn't mean to say that he was a, a, a became an evangelical Protestant, but he's much more aware of the presence uh, of God, and he comes to look upon slavery as uh, as a sin, uh, one of these dividing lines that you cannot compromise upon. And in fact, in, in June of 1858 when he gives this uh, acceptance speech, accepting the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate in Illinois, he quotes from the book of Matthew in the Bible, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, And he believed very deeply that the nation could not exist half-slave, half-free. Well, the the fact was the nation had existed ever since the beginning, half-slave and half-free, so that was uh, not right. But he wrote to a friend of his, after his election in 1860, uh, saying that the tug has to come, meaning that the tug has to come sooner or later, that we're going uh, to have a conflict over this. Uh, and it seems that if he didn't welcome war, uh, he at least believed that it would be a, as you put it uh, very correctly, a cleansing action. Uh, an action to cleanse, to rid America of the sin. In fact, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was very close to Abraham Lincoln, uh, believed that this was the unfolding of the book of Revelation, and that we were not entering a civil war, but we were entering
0: Armageddon. Mm. Wow, that's an interesting way to uh, run a country and and plan for uh, the future. Did Lincoln... Fort Sumter is always seen. That's what we were taught as as young kids. That that was the South started the war by firing on Fort Sumter. Why? And and virtually every war needs some sort of incident like that. Why did Lincoln want an incident like Fort Sumter? Did the South feel forced into a war? And what was Lincoln's attitude toward waging war against Americans?
2: I, I think Lincoln was ready for war. He was ready for, uh, for conflict. Uh, his uh, inaugural address in March of 1861, uh, about a month before Sumter, was not particularly uh, conciliatory. And he made it clear that he would defend uh, this last of two remaining uh, forts in federal hands. Well, uh, if he made a fetish of the fact that Forts could not be taken over, federal forts could not be taken over by the Confederate States of America. Well, by the time he took office, uh, everyone but two were in Confederate hands, so the the principle uh, was was violated. Uh, And he recognized, however, that the North particularly was not united behind a, a war at all. They did not want to go to war at all. So in order for war to occur, in order for this conflict to be adjudicated somehow, uh, there had to be a provocation on the part of the, uh, of the South. Sure. And he tried to maneuver it, maneuver it. And it's interesting, the Confederate Secretary of State at the time, Robert Toombs, begged Jefferson Davis, no matter what the provocation, no matter how much the uh, Lincoln administration uh, instigated, not to fire the first shot but jefferson davis went ahead and and did, did it anyway and of course as you know when you fire on the american flag you're going to unite uh, a people that previously were not particularly uh, united but even then lincoln had the opportunity uh... to uh, not to call for seventy five thousand troops from each uh... state uh... to put down this this rebellion uh, he could have uh, negotiated. He could have pulled back. He could not. Have, uh, he could have decided not to go uh, to war, but he decided to go to war, uh, and and of course the war came uh, and killed 620,000 men. Not to mention the millions more who mourned the, the loss of husbands, sons, and brothers. Uh, nor the men who came home maimed in mind and body. You know, Mm -hmm. the first uh, book written on what we today call post-traumatic stress disorder was written in 1876, and it concerned Civil War veterans. Now, they didn't call it PTSD in those days, uh, but but still uh, the fact that these young men uh, came from civilian backgrounds, civilian armies fought uh, the majority of soldiers on both sides, they lived in small towns and on farms. Uh, they had rarely been beyond their immediate neighborhoods. And, and this was a traumatic experience for them. And to see all this death and carnage from modern weaponry all around them, uh, it, it was, for many, it was too much to
0: bear. I can certainly see why. I guess it became a shell shock in the First World War. and uh, Right. Uh, it seems like in Congress, I'm, I'm trying to, again, look at it from the point of view of of the South, not to be sympathetic to either side particularly, but it it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Congress, in in Washington, it seemed that the North had a permanent majority. Did the South really have any other choice if they wanted, as you said, to be treated equally in a confederation of equals?
2: Well, Bert, you've brought up the fundamental issue in uh, our form of government, uh, I mean, you've heard the phrase, everybody listening has heard the phrase, majority rule. Uh, we govern by majority
0: rule. But there's still minority uh, rights. Uh,
2: yeah, that, that is the, that is the uh, issue. Uh, in a country that uh, depends upon uh, majority rule for its system of government, how do you protect minority rights? People have this idea, well... Uh, all you have to do is have a referendum on something and uh, that will solve all the problems. Right. Well, you know, in, in the South, if you had a referendum on segregation in the 1950s and 1960s, the majority would have v- voted overwhelmingly to keep uh, racial segregation. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, majority right. rule doesn't mean it's right, right. Uh, it, it is, it, it is the point. We have to find a mechanism uh, of protecting minority rights, and you're absolutely right, the South was a minority And what they were concerned about with the Lincoln administration, Now Lincoln represented the Republican Party, and the Republican Party was strictly a sectional party. It did not exist in the South. Here in North Carolina, if you lived in North Carolina in 1860, you could not vote for Abraham Lincoln because the Republican Party was not on the ballot. So Lincoln Mm. was a president just of the North. Uh, He received 40% of the popular vote which obviously is not a majority, but uh, as you know, in our system of government, the popular vote uh, is nice to look at. (laughs) It doesn't elect a president. The Electoral College elects a president. And uh, because the North was more populous than the South, uh, they won in the Electoral College. So um, Lincoln was a minority president, and particularly a sectional minority. So here's what Southerners were uh, concerned about. Uh, in those days, we didn't have uh, what today we call civil service. So the president appointed every all federal officials, mm. so federal customs officials, uh, federal post office, post office officials. Every federal office in every state uh, would be manned by a Republican uh, who would naturally be hostile to, uh, to the South. Um, in terms of, uh, for example, internal improvements, uh, having federal funds deepening rivers and harbors and, and uh, ports, uh, and uh, providing uh, railroads subsidies. Do you think, if you were a Southerner, would you think that any of these subsidies would go uh, to the South? Well, obviously, they, they wouldn't. Would a transcontinental railroad have a Southern route? No, uh, it wouldn't. So basically, what you're looking at uh, in a Republican administration Uh, is uh, a government that was hostile to your basic interests, and that would um, enforce basically a colonial uh, regime uh, on your section uh, of the country. So So in economic terms, and particularly in terms of protecting your institution of slavery, um, this was a very threatening administration, and there was nothing that Lincoln did in the months between uh, his election in November of 1860 and the firing on Fort Sumter to alleviate any anxiety upon the part of the South. In fact, there were several compromise proposals uh, floated about that uh, actually generated uh, lots of support in the North. Uh, But Lincoln would have none of it. Uh, He did not want to compromise. He believed that the Republican Party had a mandate, even though they had only 40 percent of the vote, he believed they had a mandate uh, to to rule, to bar slavery from the territories, and not to have any constitutional protection uh, for that uh, institution. Hmm. So, uh,
0: I, I the, could, I'm, I'm reminded of the old phrase uh, "taxation without representation," <laughs> which. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's basically what it, uh, uh, what it would have been, yeah. a- and and uh, it could only get worse because. Uh, The South uh, was uh, losing uh, in the population war because as the Western states began to fill up, uh, particularly west of the Mississippi, uh, they would all be free states and uh, generally go toward the Republican Party. Uh, So uh, the South would be in an even deeper minority position uh, in, in future years. And if you look, Bert, at what happened... Uh, Over the next century, that is exactly what happened. The South became a colonial uh, province. Uh, The South's economy basically was controlled and constricted and restricted uh, by the North. Now, the only way that the South uh, achieved uh, any parity in terms of legislation uh, in the 20th century up until about the mid-1960s was the seniority system allowed uh, Southerners to attain chairmanships of key committees. But that didn't really occur until the 1930s and 1940s. But up until that time, uh, the South was in a very weak position in terms uh, of politics. You know, historians tell you, well, the South ran the government before the Civil War. Well, not really. Uh, They did have a majority on the Supreme Court, but they... Certainly, particularly after 1850, they were an increasing minority uh, in the in both houses of Congress, particularly in the House of Representatives. And uh, certainly, even if you did have Democratic presidents, the uh, North had a two-thirds majority, that they could override any veto that a president uh, might impose upon legislation.
0: So it's, it sounds like if the South... Like all Americans, was interested in self-government and participating in our own government. It, it sounds like they didn't really have a lot of choice, and and the uh, the certitude and inflexibility of the North and its spokesperson Lincoln didn't leave them a lot of wiggle room. It sounds like
2: it it, it didn't really uh, leave much room, but. Uh, there was a tradition in our government uh, stemming from the Constitutional Convention of 1787 uh, that we would uh, acknowledge uh, and uh, plan for minority rights. Now, if you go back to the debates in the Constitution in in 1787, uh, well, James Madison of Virginia, he wanted uh, both houses of Congress, that is the House of Representatives and the Senate, to reflect population. Uh, but in a bow to the smaller states, the compromise was that the U.S. Senate, every state, would have two senators. Yes. So you have a state like today, Wyoming, uh, with 600,000 uh, people. Uh, well, there are 600,000 people in, in the city I live Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and the entire state of Wyoming uh, uh, has, as, has two senators and the entire state of North Carolina or New York or or California, two senators as well. So there's a mismatch in terms of power there. But we do that to protect uh, the minority states, that is to protect those states that have uh, lower populations. So if you look at throughout our our history, uh, we have tried to accommodate uh, minority rights but it became increasingly unlikely that we would be able to do so once the religious fervor uh, injected itself uh, into the political process i mean listen to william seward when he stood on the floor of the u-s senate uh, when he said there is a higher law than the constitution well we are a nation of laws we are governed by the constitution Uh, We are not governed by God. We are not governed by Bible. Uh, It's perfectly okay to be a person of faith. It's perfectly all right. In fact, we celebrate uh, the religious diversity of of our country. But we should not be governed by the Bible, because the Bible means different things to different people, even within the same faith. And if we go that route, we're going the route of, Chaos. Uh, whereas if we have a constitution, we have a judiciary that will adjudicate any disputes and a legislative branch that will make laws according to that constitution. Once you inject the Bible and God into the political process, uh, it becomes much more chaotic and ultimately has the potential of being much more authoritarian.
0: Sounds like we are not talking about history, but current events,
2: unfortunately. Well, it, it, it definitely sounds that way. You, you know, it's interesting, but I started writing this book in, in 2006, uh, and, and our government wasn't particularly dysfunctional then, although it was on, certainly on, on its way. Uh, but now, uh, you know, when the book came out, it was clear that uh, our government seems to be moving to the extremes. The center uh, is eroding, and we still have this evangelical fervor, particularly yes. in, the, uh, in the Tea Party, yes. uh, w- which contradictorily uh, wants the government uh, to legislate the, this morality. It wants the government uh, to legislate uh, on gay marriage. It wants the government to legislate on abortion. It right. wants the government to legislate on school prayer, on a, an entire uh, array of, of issues. Uh, and of course, this uh, is uh, highly uh, unconstitutional. Uh, so, in, in a sense, there's a déjà vu. Uh, and when you add to that that currently we are uh, we are embarking on three wars yes. of choice rather than three wars of necessity, right. uh, in much the same fashion that the Civil War uh, was a war of choice, mm. not of necessity. Now, people will tell you, uh, tell me, and they have told me, "Hey, what uh, what w- what do you mean by saying?" That that the Civil War was a war of of choice. We had to get rid of uh, slavery, a- and certainly uh, that was a blot uh, upon not only our Constitution, but it, it was a blot upon our our nation. Clearly, uh, the, the real question is: uh, We were the only slaveholding nation to abolish slavery with a Civil War. Was there another way, a better way, a more peaceful way to abolish slavery without a Civil War? And then. You look upon what happened a century after the Civil War. African Americans still not, had not attained their civil and political rights. Uh, could not their rights have been granted much sooner if we didn't have the animosity uh, and the yes. bitterness that accompanies all wars and the aftermath of all wars? Uh, which, in fact, limited the civil rights of African Americans, a limit, by the way, that was placed not only by white Southerners, but also by white Northerners on
0: African Americans. Oh, absolutely. i got to read uh, one quote from Frederick, Frederick Douglass in your book, America Aflame. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, indicated that slavery, constricted to where it already existed, would eventually atrophy and die. This is Frederick Douglass talking here. And, you know, it just the point about, well, we could have compensated the southern slaveholders, completely bought the slaves and freed them for half of what the war cost. But, of course, that, you know, who could see that? That, I mean, I don't think anybody predicted that the war would be as expensive and as bloody as, as it turned out to be. Right. Now, a lot of people wanted a negotiated peace during the war. It was dragging on and on and on. Why did this not happen? Was it the same religious zealotry and just uh, being inflexible that that prevented that? I
2: I think certainly, Bert, that was a a great uh, part of it. Uh, The problem, uh, there were several points during the war, and even as late uh, as 1864, when the outcome of the war was much less in doubt. uh, There were frantic efforts underway, particularly by Abraham Lincoln's a good friend uh, alexander stevens who at, th- who at that point was vice president of the confederate states of america uh... there were attempts to get together to have a uh, a peaceful solution uh... the problem is in negotiations uh... you have to be willing to compromise and neither side was willing to give up uh... its particular uh... point For the Lincoln administration, uh, they uh, did not want to give up the fact that before uh, any uh, negotiation uh, could take place, the South would have to agree to come back into the Union uh, and by 1864, at least, uh, to agree to the abolition of slavery. And from the Southern point of view, uh, negotiation meant that uh, the North, the Union, would acknowledge the South's independence. And on that basis, they would be more than willing to uh, negotiate. Well, uh, obviously, uh, the mm-hmm. sides were always very far apart, but they did sit down uh, and uh, and talk about it. And it's interesting that if the war had ended in 1864, it's quite likely the Emancipation Proclamation would have been tossed out. Uh, and we were very close to doing that because uh... general george b mcclellan was the democratic nominee for president in eighteen sixty four and everybody thought that lincoln was a dead bug everybody agreed in the summer of eighteen sixty four that lincoln uh, was a failed president. the war was going badly for for the union uh... the the draft the new draft for five hundred thousand men had been immensely unpopular and caused a a riot in in new york city among other places uh, and, in fact, the Republicans were even casting about for another nominee, which was uh, un, almost unprecedented in terms of uh, having an incumbent president uh, running. Uh, but uh, in September, Sherman took Atlanta, and in October, uh, General uh, Phil Sheridan uh, took the Valley of Virginia, destroyed the Valley of Virginia as the Confederacy's breadbasket. Yeah. And those two smashing victories saved the Lincoln candidacy and helped him get uh, reelected at, at beating Senator uh, beating General George B McClellan yeah, yeah. but had those events not occurred it is very likely that peace would have would have happened because McClellan ran on a peace platform and that peace platform uh, would likely have spared the institution of of slavery so why, in fact, did we kill six hundred twenty thousand men? You know, in the book uh, I have this uh, wonderful painting uh, of uh, African Americans picking cotton uh, by the Mississippi River in 1883, and uh, I'm thinking that if you, if the painter had gone down to Mississippi in 1853. He could have painted the The same same exact painting. Why did we have this bloody civil war? Uh, In other words, you know, people will tell me, well, you know, yeah, the war was bad, and it it did kill a lot of men, but look what came out of uh, that. Uh, Slaves got their freedom, uh, and the the Union was saved. Well, uh, I raise the question that the Union would have been saved in any case, that the North was this big economic industrial juggernaut, That would have survived and thrived as it did, uh, even without the South, and particularly without the South, since the South was an economic albatross uh, for a century after the Civil War. And as far as African Americans, your quote from Frederick Douglass was absolutely right. Slavery could not have survived uh, if constricted into the boundaries it would have been constricted into. Uh, so it required, because cotton was the type of crop that really leached the soil and required uh, significant expansion every 10 to 20 years, and that could never have happened. A lot of acres Could not go into the Western territories, and certainly the Mexicans were not uh, opening their arms to Southerners uh, taking over their uh, land either. Uh, so, uh, what, in fact, were the positive results of this civil
0: war? Hmm. Tough to say, tough to say. And I, that leads us into after Reconstruction, which was an attempt basically uh, sounded like to to insert uh, federal power, federal authority over the defeated states. And it didn't work particularly well, which led to something called redemption, which was a fascinating uh, uh, power uh, that, uh, as you say, After the war, I mean, the South was devastated. The war, all the battles were fought. In the South, it was completely devastated. Uh, You have a quote in there, loathing the present, fearing the future. They, the Southerners, looked to the past. Redemption became the new religion. The war and its aftermath crucified the South. You said soon would come the resurrection of a great people. And uh, it's fascinating to me how the North dealt with this, this, this uh, return to uh, the white slaveholders coming back to power, and how that fed into the new faith that the North had in science. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what this re- redemption meant.
2: Well, well, I'm really glad you brought that up. Bert, because uh, frequently, when people, um, or sometimes when people talk about my book, they they leave this particular uh, part out, uh, as if life ended a- after uh, in after April 18. Oh,
0: that's one of the I, most uh, important parts. Uh,
2: everything of the book. falls off the the, the the end of the earth. And the fact was, uh, the prevailing uh, historical interpretation is that uh, basically this redemption occurred. Uh, the redemption uh, meaning the return to power of uh, the. Uh, Former Confederates, particularly uh, the Democratic Party, occurred uh, because uh, the North became indifferent uh, to uh, what was happening in the South. The fact was the North was complicit. Uh, This redemption was a national process. And again, there's no republic of virtue here. Both sides uh, are culpable. Uh, And what happened was that uh, African-American rights, such as they were, were subverted, uh and northerners uh were complicit in this why were they complicit because they saw this happening in their own backyards only it was not african americans uh, white southerners were complaining hey these african americans they're incompetent you, you know they're just out of slavery why should they be voting why should they be holding office well the fact was that in no state were african americans a majority uh of uh, either voters or office holders except for south carolina uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, white Southerners uh, trump this up uh, uh, as a way to generate northern sympathy. Well, why would Northerners, white Northerners, be sympathetic? Well, they were sympathetic because they saw these all these immigrants, particularly yes, Irish immigrants, yes. and again this this Catholic menace uh, reemerges uh, in their midst. And they saw all these uh, city machines, not only the incompetence, but particularly the corruption, the Tweed machine right. uh, in New York and other Democratic Party. Uh, machines, and they equated uh, them with uh, corruption and with ignorance and with the fact that these people shouldn't be voting. So there was a, uh, a big push in the North to limit the electoral rights of immigrants, uh, to re- uh, expand the citizenship, say, from five-year period to 21 years, or bar immigrants altogether from voting. And when white Southerners complained, hey, you know, uh, our uh, African Americans, uh, they're just as ignorant as your immigrants, Uh aha, we understand that now. Uh, We understand where you're coming from. In fact, Thomas Nast, and I have this cartoon in the book, Thomas Nast has this cartoon uh, which he calls the ignorant vote, uh, and uh, on a balance scale, and on one end of the scale uh, is a caricature of a black person and under it is written the South. Uh, and on the other uh, balance uh, is uh, an Irishman. And of course, Nast always uh, depicted Irishmen as monkeys. Yes. Uh, in other words, he racialized the Irish. They're not, not quite human, they're sort of subhuman yep. species. Uh, and uh, on that uh, panel, uh, he had written the North. So uh, there was an equation of the Irish with the black. That the, the Irish were the northerns, uh, Northerners' problem, and the black person was the Southerners' problem. So let's get rid of them both. Let's disfranchise both. Uh, the only thing was that white Southerners were much more successful in disfranchising uh, and uh, limiting the uh, civil and political rights of African Americans than Northerners uh, were in limiting the rights of immigrants. But you look at the referenda that occurred in the North uh, after the in, the in the years after the Civil War. On extending the ballot to African Americans, just when Northern Republicans were imposing upon Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana on giving African Americans the right to vote, uh, Minnesota and uh, Iowa and uh, Indiana were taking the ballot away from African Americans in the North. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, talk about hypocrisy—it's just, just incredible. So uh, the reconstruction I depict is that the average white northerner, the vast majority uh, of of northerners of course were- were white since ninety six percent of the African Americans in the country resided in the south so right. uh, uh, most of the northerners were white the average white northerner was interested uh, in primarily in making money, in taking advantage of this great economic boom, yes. in this vast expansion of the uh, urban middle class, of moving to the cities, of taking new jobs, of seeing uh, these great technological innovations, of the electric light bulb, the telegraph, uh, the telephone. Uh, th- this uh, th- this was what um, preponded in the North. And, of course, the scientists, uh, northern universities uh, gave over to this new scientific curriculum. They uh, downgraded or abolished entirely their divinity schools. Uh, and they, uh, they generally looked upon science as saying, hey, uh, you know, science has given us Charles Darwin. Charles yes. Darwin has given this hierarchy of species. Uh-huh. Obviously, the Africans are at the low end of the species, down uh, with the Irish and therefore, uh, we shouldn't do anything for them or anything to them, but let them figure it out themselves.
0: Fascinating. We are talking with uh, author David Goldfield about America Aflame, how the Civil War created a nation. And I was fascinated, I have to say, with, with how it, it appears that, that science became kind of a new religion in the North, but it backed up the belief that, that white Protestant males— were clearly a superior race and that uh, unqualified people, whether Irish or black or whatever, could not be allowed to participate in government. That wasn't seen as racism, but just just science. And that by restoring the redeemed Confederates' men of property and enterprise to political power served that that worthy goal. So what happened with the uh, evangelical crusading abolitionists that helped start the war... To end the evils of slavery, uh, they they fanned the flames of the war to stop this evil. What was their role for, uh, with regard to the freedmen, the the black men after the war? D- it seems like well, they just bought into the popular science of racial superiority and walked away from the issue. Did I? Is, is that
2: well? I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Bert, uh, they walked away uh, but uh, in a sense they were pushed away too because there was a tremendous revulsion in the north uh, against uh, this certitude against this self-righteousness uh, that the evangelicals uh, pervade uh, and in fact uh, northerners recognized had uh, precipitated the armed conflict and, and they wanted no uh, no part of it in fact uh, in uh, the early 1870s, during the Grant administration, a group of evangelicals came to the White House to propose a Christian amendment to the Constitution. Right. Uh, that is changing the preamble of the of the Constitution, uh, instead of "We the People," uh, we the Christian people, identifying the U.S. as a Christian nation. And uh, Grant just said, "Forget about it. Uh, this is just not going to." to fly nobody was really interested so there was, was a tremendous rejection also the leading evangelist uh of uh, America before the civil war Henry Ward Beecher oh, yes. uh became embroiled in a, a very uh, titillating uh, but damaging adultery trial uh in the uh, early 1870s so the credibility of these e- evangelicals was, was at an all time right. low I-, I think the end of the second great awakening was Abraham Lincoln's masterful second inaugural word address. And now picture this, Bert. uh it's March of 1865. The outcome of the war is not in doubt. The uh, Grant would surrender within another month and people flocked to Washington expecting Lincoln to give this triumphal speech to say God was on our side uh and we were uh, triumphant. The good guys were triumphant. Uh the new Zion, the new Israel, we were triumphant. Well, uh, he did not give them what they wanted. Many people were disappointed with the speech. What he said was, well, you know, God gave us this war, but uh, I don't know why, uh, and who knows God's purpose, uh, and uh, the message we should take is uh, with malice toward none, with charity to all. In other words, it was a message, an inaugural address, 753 words, Hmm. very short, uh, that said, uh, hey, uh, let's reconcile. Let, let, let's put this behind us. Let's forget about it. Uh, that's what we need uh, to do. We need to reconcile. Uh, and, and people were thirsting for blood at this point. That they, they, they wanted revenge. That they, they wanted to uh, grind the South with the Lord's terrible swift sword. Right. right. <clears throat> so, uh, so Lincoln's inaugural address was 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 shocking. But it marked the end uh, of the evangelical fervor in, in the North, and the turn toward science, because uh, the belief was that science is natural. Yeah. Science is verifiable. Right. Uh, we can do experiments uh, to justify our, our policies, uh, whereas God is not verifiable. Faith is not verifiable. And you see what this certitude, this self-righteousness, had gotten us into. into. It had gotten us into death and destruction. Uh, and so science is now the new god. But, but of course, uh, replacing one god with another is not necessarily progress.
0: Bro. Right. Now, certainly the, the notion of progress in science at the time seemed to prove the superiority of the white Protestants, the Indians, and any others, black, Irish, whatever, stood in the way of scientific progress. And that,
2: That's exactly right, uh, Bert. And, and in fact, one of the things I do in my book, which other historians don't do, I go into some detail on our Indian policy. Yes. And how our Indian policy particularly uh, reflected, first, this religious point of view, that, well, these people are, are savages, uh-huh. um, that they are really uh, pagans and... Uh, they uh, cannot be brought to Jesus Christ, so they deserve uh, to have their lands taken away from them because they're not fulfilling God's purpose for this land. Uh, whereas after the war, the belief was well, uh, the Indians uh, are clearly inferior people, but we need to take care of them, so let's put them on reservations away from uh, the influence of white people, uh, and hopefully uh, they'll become uh, eventually good Christians and good people and good farmers. Um, And they'll be able uh, to uh, work for themselves.
0: Right, really wiping out their culture entirely, which was largely successful. Now today, many Americans, uh, like, I mean, there was the science of the times, whites are clearly superior, Uh, there's America's uh, mission, and we can't let anything get in the way. Today, many Americans... Also believe in the science of an untethered economy. They kind of exalt an unfettered market rule. That seems to be the so-called science that a lot of the people on the on the right believe in. And I wonder how dangerous that may be. Well,
2: well, oh, that's a, that's a great uh, comparison, Bert. Because uh, in, in effect, uh, it's it's exactly the uh, the same thing uh people in the 1870s uh, uh William Graham Sumner uh, um, uh, Herbert Spencer uh, and uh, other uh philosophers uh, among them believed that government should uh completely stay out of the economy shouldn't help the poor uh shouldn't uh be concerned about the pure uh, food and, and drugs right. shouldn't be concerned about uh, banking practices shouldn't be concerned about interstate commerce uh because uh, uh science Right. uh... has its own natural laws and if government intervenes uh... the chances are pretty good that it's going to screw things up because you're intervening in a natural uh... process uh... of course uh... this uh, proved uh, uh... not only wrong uh, but it uh, proved cruel a- as well uh... and uh... this is why we had a period uh, beginning in the eighteen nineties and lasting until about nineteen twenty uh... called the progressive era uh, where government, uh, in fact, uh, intruded into a wide array uh, of uh, activities, such as interstate commerce, such as pure sure. uh, food and drugs, such yeah. as antitrust, uh, and such as uh, banking, uh, and uh, we even instituted—God forbid—we even instituted an income tax uh, during during this time.
0: The common good, uh,
2: under under the belief—and can you believe this? But uh, under the belief. Uh, that, yeah, uh, wealthy people um, uh, probably should pay something to support the government, uh, so uh, well
0: I, I find it a so
2: tremendous revulsion, and I, I think we, we may see the pendulum swing back in that uh, direction no. again. I, I, uh, maybe i 'm too optimistic, but I, I believe that that eventually we'll'll we'll come into a new progressive era into this country.
0: I certainly hope so. I have to say I was struck by a quote from your book, E.L. Godkin, who uh, one of the peop- many people you quote. He said, The government must get out of the protective business and the subsidy business and the improvement and development business. Sounds like it could be said today. It's amazing. The, the, yeah, the st-
2: yeah it, it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly the same. Uh, but, but, of course, he wasn't talking about the uh, huge land subsidies, uh that the government gave to the railroads, for example. Uh he he was talking more in terms about subsidies for social service organizations and, and, and the like. Uh so uh well just the, letting the sub-
0: Southerners run their own you know business if if they want to have, you know, racism, hey, what the heck, it's right. not our business. The North is going to move ahead, the South, well, you can come along if you want, but hey, what the heck. I have to ask some right-wing commentators, uh, Professor Goldfield, see another civil war possible because there's so much religious-based certitude and inflexibility. Of course, we don't have the, the, the geographic uh, lines in the sand, but... Uh, Boy, I sure hope there's no violence like that. But there's, I'm, I'm concerned about this religious-based certitude and inflexibility.
2: Well, here, here's the difference, Burton. Uh, in 1860, the 1860 election, uh, you had a turnout uh, approaching 80 percent. Uh, we're never going to get that no. in, in any presidential election, uh, probably in in the near future, certainly. In my lifetime. Uh, and almost every one of those voters uh, were, they were connected. Uh, and supported a political party. Uh, today, however, about 40% of the electorate is independent. Uh, and uh, independents historically have tended to be centrist. That is, they gravitate toward the center. Uh-huh. So, with this relatively large portion of our electorate being centrist, it is unlikely that something like the Civil War uh, can occur now uh, of course today in, in we see in in congress we see this gridlock this this deadlock this unwillingness uh, to compromise this movement to the extremes uh... and th- that that is certainly a, a, a reflection of uh, intransigence But uh, perhaps future elections uh, will be corrective because you have this large body of independence these folks who are in the extreme, do not represent the majority of of the country. Right. Uh, So that is the major difference. He did not have a strong and extensive independent voting bloc in 1860.
0: We have been talking, and we could talk another couple of hours or so, at At least. least I could, with David Goldfield, author of the amazing new book. Boy, it sheds a lot of new light into a lot of different corners that aren't normally looked at. And I have to say, upon finishing the book, I just felt like it was an avoidable tragedy of unfathomable proportions. And it, it was just so awful, and it, and it didn't have to happen. As you say, America could have accommodated our great diversity without the tragedy of a civil war. I, I recommend this book highly. America Aflame, David Goldfield, How the Civil War Created a Nation. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure.
0: America Aflame. Thanks very much for being with us.